listening to Redeemer Church of Denton's sermon audio. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit us online at RedeemerDenton.com. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, which has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, first Peter was a letter written to uh, who he calls in verse one there, uh, elect exiles, those chosen by God, but feeling a little bit out of place, not exactly where they belong. And so it, it, it opens with this sort of eternal perspective that there's more to this right in front of us. And so the, the theme of this letter, I'll admit, is persecution. And so it seems kind of weird to preach on joy here, but, but I, I believe that this letter and what Peter's doing and setting the tone is that he starts it with joy. Joy sets the tone for how to deal with all kinds of persecution, all kinds of outside pressure. And, and joy is, I, I actually believe, central to this message of how to walk through and deal with persecution in the Christian life. And it's actually the, uh, the physical center of this passage. Verse 6 starts off, in this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. This phrase is uh, central to the passage that we just read, and everything moves around that phrase, right? It's like a, like a, a compass, right, where, where you put, you know, not like a directional compass, but you, you remember those things they gave you in math class that nobody really quite knew what to do, but teachers were a little bit anxious because they could be dangerous, and you give it to a middle schooler, it's a bad sign, no offense, um, right? But it's the point at which everything kind of moves around, right? In this, you rejoice. Or maybe you can think of it like a hinge, right? Like every, everything, you have a pin and a hinge, and everything kind of moves around it. It, it. it looks back, this phrase looks back to what comes before, and it also looks forward, right? As you get a phrase like, in which you rejoice, the next question you have to ask is, in what? right? In what you rejoice. And it looks forward and anticipates what's coming, right? The next phrase is, though now. You have to ask, now what? And so we're going to look back. We're going to see how this joy looks back in these verses, and we're going to see how it looks forward. And Peter's letter here, I've always been kind of blown away by this. It's not hard to understand as you read through this, and I would challenge you guys to do it. Like, read through this letter. It makes sense, the arguments and things that he's saying here, it makes sense. You can feel his passion for believers. 
But when we start to mine Peter's word, as you should do with all of Scripture, you, you just get gold, right? As you work through the uh, technical aspects of these verses, you get more of what God is trying to say through Peter in this letter. And so this sermon might end up looking a little bit more technical, and, and I hope that that's just beneficial for us. All right, let's look at how rejoicing looks back. What's the noun, what's the thing that this rejoicing points back to? Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. You see how that points back to a salvation. Now we understand salvation as to be uh, that way in which we are saved. It's something experienced in the here and now. That we're saved from our sin, that we're redeemed from our sin, but it has an eye towards eternity. And we believe that this, this is only possible through a savior. And so you can think like a lifeguard, like if you jump in a pool and you don't know how to swim, you're not going to save yourself, right? It's going to require a lifeguard. It's going to require somebody else to take initiative, come scoop you up, uh, do CPR, whatever it is that needs to be done to save your life. This is how we view ourselves with the weight of sin upon us and the burden of God's wrath upon us. We need somebody to come and change that. So verse 3 is where he starts. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Savior, Jesus Christ. It starts with Jesus. And so if you're asking, what's the nature of this salvation? It's that it starts with Jesus. Next, the, the nature of our salvation is that it's according to God's good mercy. God's great mercy. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope. We talk about in RSM and Redeemer Student Ministry often when we try to uh, not just like say some of these churchy words like mercy and all that, but actually unpack them and, and try to give a definition to it. And so do you guys remember what do we usually say mercy is? Yeah, they don't remember. When we talk about mercy, we're saying this is not getting what we do deserve. When we talk about grace, we say that's getting something that we don't deserve. And so God's mercy and grace work hand in hand. When we, we say God's great mercy, we're saying our track record is filthy. And God's mercy had to be tremendously great. And it is. It's according to God's good mercy, this salvation. It starts with Jesus, it's according to his mercy, and it's caused us to be born again. Look there, verse three, again. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's fueled by the resurrection, right? But he's caused us to be born again. Now, I know uh, for some people this might seem like an old churchy word, but it's a biblical truth we need to hold on to tight. There was a time when you were not born, right, in, in the body, physically, and then there was a time when you had been born. Such is the same with this born again, right? There was a time in which I did not see the world in light of eternity. I did not experience the beauty of God's great mercy. But when I was born again, everything changed. 
in that regard. Now, actually, uh, I don't know that it's super important that you remember that exact moment when you were born again. Some people use that as a key part in their testimony. For many people in this room, you might not be able to point to a moment in time when that is. One of my favorite pastors that I really look up to even mentions, he's like, I don't remember my first birth, right? Um, But what do I do as a proof to show that I am alive? You just breathe, right? (sighs) I'm alive, I have been born. Such is the same with this being born again. I, I don't necessarily have to remember what that is. I just know the present reality that I'm in. Yes. That God has saved me. Yes. And there's this new life that started at some point and it wasn't destined for death like this old one was. The need to be born again, I'm telling you right now, is the deepest need of everyone in this room. It's the deepest need of everyone on this planet who God has created. It's an eternal perspective that we have to shift and put in line with Scripture. And so you ask, what's the nature of our salvation? It's eternal. It's forever. It's never ending. And so Peter gives us then Three promises pointing towards eternity. Three promises pointing towards eternity. The first one is hope. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He gives us a hope. Not just any hope. A living hope. Literally in the Greek that that living is a verb, right? Literally in the Greek, it reads, a hope alive. It's active, it's a verb. Hope actually changes the way that we move and live and breathe in this life. And it's fueled by the resurrection, right? It's sealed and secured by the fact that three days Jesus was dead, and on that Sunday, breath entered his lungs. It's a hope that there's more than this vapor of a life, whether it was two months or 90 years. It's a hope that our loss on this side of eternity is heaven's gain. It's a hope that there is more than our current circumstances. It's living. I think it was... Uh, pretty powerful whenever I, I realized and I recognized that this qualifier given to hope that it's living was a verb and that what Jesus defeated in his resurrection was the dead and that's a noun. Like dead just does nothing. Living hope is moving and breathing and living and it ought to change the way that we look at this world and this life and ought to shape how we view every circumstance. Number two, the second promise pointing towards eternity is that he gives us an inheritance. Verse four, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. An inheritance is something passed down to us. And here, it's not just an inheritance. It's not just something that we get, but it's, a, it's an inheritance that's imperishable. The word here is literally immortal. 
It's not going away. It's guaranteed. It's permanent. An inheritance that is uh, undefiled. The word here is pure. It's not tampered with. It's not tainted with. There's no fine print to it, right? That might twist it from how God intended it to be. It's unfading. The word here is not losing its pristine quality. Never getting worse. Always lasting. Never getting better because it's already best. This is the inheritance that is promised to us an eternal life. I, I want to say more on inheritance. I, we, we, I need to move. The third thing that God promises or that Peter shows us as a promise pointing towards eternity is protection. Verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded or protected through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Guarded through faith by the power of God. The same power to speak earth into existence in Genesis 1. Or to put breath in your lungs as you're experiencing it in this room right now. Or on the sea as the waves are crashing by and people thought they were going to die. He speaks and says stop and the, the sea just stops. Or to call a lame man to walk or cause the blind to see. Or to Say to Lazarus, come out, and he comes out, or to raise himself from the dead. That power of God is what's guarding and protecting this salvation. That same power that spoke everything into existence is what is gripping you in this security. We are foolish to think that we can escape the power of this God's grasp. If he has brought you a brand new birth and brand new life, he will keep you. We unapologetically believe here that God will carry those truly born again into eternity. So we don't attend funerals of those who are born again wondering whether our brother and sister in Christ, wondering where they are. We know beyond a shadow of doubt they're with their Lord, their great merciful Savior, and they are enjoying Him without end. So He gets there. In this we rejoice. Let's talk about how this phrase moves forward. In this we rejoice. Because then it gets heavier. Verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. We rejoice, though now we grieve. This word grief is to become sad or sorrowful, or distressed. Rejoice, though now we grieve. These two things seem at odds with each other, right? Like, how is this that this happens? I think as we continue to mine this passage for gold and, and, and try to figure out what Peter's getting at, it starts to re- reveal some of that. And, and so he takes this to four different characteristics of grief or sorrow, or distress. 
The first is that grief is a present reality. Look at it. Though now for a little while. In the original language, it's, it's literally, that word while isn't even there. It says, though now, for a little now, for a little now, for, for a moment right now, we're walking through this grief or sadness or sorrow or distress. It's real. The Bible doesn't shy away from the reality that we deal with this. Right? It's not all sunshine and rainbows in our experience and how we, uh, how, how we experience this life. There is joy that's lasting and deep and powerful. But sorrow and sadness and grief are very real. Some in this room are walking through it right now. In fact, probably most of us, given the week that we've had. I don't take it lightly when I say it's a little now. What I'm trying to do is do what Peter's doing here and point you towards eternity. And to view grief in the context of eternal joy. It's only little in the scheme of eternity. It may be a moment when you woke up this morning and you were just overwhelmed and carrying the burden of grief that you couldn't even put your finger on. Or maybe a lifetime of pain and hurt in your body physically where it's actually even hard to get to that point of getting out of bed. It's all in the scheme of eternity, little. And Again, I don't take that lightly. In fact, I'll go to somewhere else in Scripture that I think unpacks this beautifully. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's one of my favorite letters ever given in the Bible. I'm so thankful for it. Because Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 4. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And that sounds like a hope wish, right? That, that, that this little moment, like we'll move past it and go on and, and, and everything will be okay better. And, and, and it seems like that on the surface. But whenever you read it in the context in chapter one, when he says we actually despaired of life itself and we thought we were gonna die. Like this is the posture that he's in right now. And he can say in this light and momentary affliction, God's preparing for us something entirely greater. And then he goes on in chapter 11. He lists all the ways he almost has died and is being killed right now. We read scripture and we say grief is real and it's right now. It's a present reality. Now, I understand my personality is to act counter to this. Like if I take all the personality tests and all this online, like my, I'm the one that, that tends to try to push this stuff down to move past it, act like it's not there, ignore it, act like it's not real. Verse six won't let me do that. In this you rejoice, though now, at the same time, now, for a little while, you've been grieved by various trials. My temptation in this so often, and it may be the same with some of you, is to view joy and grief as sequential, right? 
So, so I'm going to walk through this grief, and then when I'm done with that, then I'll step into joy. Verse 6 doesn't let us do that. They're simultaneous. Joy in grief. It's not grief, then joy. It's joy in grief. The second characteristic of grief is that it's necessary. Is that it's necessary. Verse 6. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. I'm convinced that the if here is less of a condition, like whether or not this person deserves grief. We already dealt with that as we talked about God's great mercy and what we all deserve. I think that if is an assumption that it is necessary in order to know the true characteristics of real joy. It's more of an admission that we don't know why it's necessary, but it is. The undeniable fact is that it's all in God's hands. And we have to get to a point, church, where we see God designing our own grief. Yes, we experience the burdens of the fall. But we have to walk through that, acknowledging with the utmost confidence that God has not lost control. My wife has a simple phrase that captures this theological complexity when she prays in a time of grief. She prays and she says, God, you were not surprised by this. Like, it's a really hard thing to say that God designs our grief and that it's necessary for us to walk through this according to the will of God. But this simple phrase, God, you were not surprised by this, just synthesizes all that theological complexity and reminds us of our posture of humility to say God is in control and I'm not, and our posture of confidence saying that you have a purpose for this. And we'll get there and we're talking about purpose here in a second. The third characteristic of grief is that it has variety. You've been grieved by various trials. Grief comes in all different forms, at all different times, in different ways. And they're things that keep us on our toes and catch us off guard. There's two definitions for this word trials. The first one is an attempt to learn the real nature of something, right? you wrestle through reality. The second is an attempt to make somebody do wrong. And so we can understand trials in uh, these two contexts, right? Like as we wrestle and grapple with the, uh, the fact that our closest friend is no longer on this earth with us and we have to deal with that reality and accept a world where that is not the case, right? And as we're confronted with countless people trying to lead us astray and guide us into something that might be destructive, not just to us, but the kingdom of God, this is what the trials are. Grief is complex. It deals with us trying to wrestle with reality. It deals with us trying to fight temptation. Both of those require us to deny ourselves and to step into that living hope that God has called us to. The fourth characteristic of grief 
is that it has a purpose. It has a purpose. So that, those two words at the start of verse seven lead us into something extremely powerful and weighty as we're thinking about what it looks like to walk through grief. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, it's more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, that that tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The purpose of our grief is to prove that your faith in that good, incredible, great, merciful God is real. And it's more precious than gold. That faith is more valuable than whatever it is that we find most valuable. That gold that perishes though it's tested by fire. Like, like I don't know if you know kind of the picture that's being painted here, right? But like whenever you uh, uh, heat gold up, right? Whenever you uh, he- heat it up, get, put it under intense flame, it, it purifies under the fire. All the impurities are, are burnt up. And it's made pure by pressure. And if it's not real, that substance, that gold, is actually even going to fail the test. And such is the deal with our faith. Our faith will fold under the pressure of grief if we don't see that God intends for us to rejoice in the midst of it. There's a purpose for our grief and it has a result that you, it may be found to result in praise in glory and honor. And here is the powerful part of these verses. You have to ask the question, whose praise, whose glory, whose honor? And we often times attribute these things to God. It's what we do when we sing here, right? I actually think what Peter's trying to do, and he's telling the elect exiles this, is that it'll result in your praise your glory, your honor. There's a reward. There's a purpose to your grief. There's a hope in your pain. I believe it's directed to us. He gives us praise. God of creation gives us glory. He gives us honor. What a powerful hope. Mike Zimmerman and Ralph Aiken this week stepped into eternity and God took the crown of glory and placed it on their heads. Gave them praise and gave them honor. Gave them glory. I, I don't know how to wrap my mind around that reality. But I know it's in the Bible and So we have to view our joy rightly in the midst of grief, that it's simultaneous, like it's not sequential. It's not hope-wish that one day we're gonna get past this grief. It's a deep-seated and rooted joy that endures through grief. So where do we go from here? I got a couple takeaways for you. From this eternal perspective of joy, The first is reject the myth 
that joy has to wait in grief. Reject the myth that joy has to wait in grief. Sadness and sorrow are real. So is joy. Don't suppress your joy in the midst of suffering. The main place I know where to go on this, I wish I, would have un- I, I, wish I could unpack it a little bit more, but last time I preached here, I actually preached on this passage, so I couldn't do it twice. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 8. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and are yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as, listen, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, having nothing, yet possessing everything. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Or you can think back to the verses we looked at last week. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, and whenever it seems like you can't rejoice, just bank on prayer and thanksgiving. And I think that joy will soon follow. Reject the myth that joy has to wait in grief. Oftentimes you've heard people say it's okay to not be okay. They might even follow it up by saying it's not okay to stay there. I think sometimes we neglect the biblical truth that it's okay to be okay. Bank on that living hope and walk and navigate this life with that kind of confidence. Takeaway number two. The little now that, that little moment that uh, though now for a little while, the little now means that the grief of youth and the grief experienced with age can be shared by all of us. Like generational pride has no place in the church. And so while your grief may look different than somebody younger than you, The burdens of a teenager, though different, are as real as the pain of a 90-year-old cancer patient. Though different, we view all of that as a little while in the scheme of eternity. And so the call to us is to invest and disciple those behind you. Like, don't let the pride of your specific grief leave you to neglect the little now of somebody behind you. Don't let it blind you to the opportunity to minister to the good news of the gospel to your kids or to the, the, the kids here in Redeemer Kids or to the student ministry, the RSM, or to the young adult ministry. We view all of it in the scheme of eternity. And I'm telling you by not letting your unique grief blind you to that reality, you're gonna invest in people the way that Ralph and Mike did. Number three, find ways to thank God for your grief. It refines us like gold in the fire. Find those phrases like, God, you weren't surprised by this. Find your own phrase, word it however you want, or use that one, I don't care, but understand that he intends our grief for our good. And you need to find a way to remind yourself of that. 
Like whether you're the type that wants to read all the books and, and, and understand all the theological nuances of that or whether you want to just simply have a phrase like that, I, I don't care. But you have to find a way to thank God for your grief. That it has a reward for us in sight. That it's going to refine us. It's more valuable than gold that's been refined. You have to do this. And the last one is simply, number four, just live in light of eternity. Life doesn't happen in small moments on a news feed as we're swiping or on a timeline. It happens beyond the scope of time. It's forever. And so live in light of that now. And if you're wrestling with that truth or with that reality, like I want you to come and talk to me after the service. I want you to talk to Pastor Josh because we've been wrestling and dealing with this in the midst of grief, fighting for joy in a really unique way this week. And so don't let today go by without talking to somebody through that. We want to introduce you to what it looks like to be born again into a living hope. And I want you to rejoice in that. And the call for all of us as church is to live in light of eternity. Hear this lyric from my favorite hymn rapper. You heard that right. Just. <laughs> this vision of eternity and how we ought to view life in light of it is given here. He says, a billion years ahead this whole world will be nothing. There's a joy that is coming like the morning and nothing that we left will compare to this new song, Hearts United in Freedom. Let's pray. Lord, we long for hearts united in freedom with those that we've lost this week. We long for and desire to walk through grief with eternal joy. Lord, we don't understand all the times like how that works, but we trust your word and we trust that it does. Lord, I pray for everybody in this room that joy would move from something that we think would just come in the future and that it would be a present reality as real as our grief is now. Lord, and with that, I pray that you would get all of the glory in light of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.